Welcome once again to this podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. If you're familiar with what we do here, you'll know that week by week we're reading through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. For some, it's a daily reading, and this week we're reading from Sermon 129 through to 135. For others, it's a weekly sermon, and we focus in on one particular text, this time from the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 3, Sermon 131, Salvation of the Lord. It was preached on the 10th of May, 1857, at the Music Hall in the Royal Surrey Gardens, and the text is Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, Salvation is of the Lord. Spurgeon has, on this occasion, quite a brief introduction. Some of his introductions are quite uh, lengthy. Uh, In some, he talks about different emphases in the text before zeroing in on one. In this, he simply tells us that Jonah learned this sentence of good theology in a strange college, in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the mountains with the weeds wrapped about his head, and reminds us, almost incidentally, that most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction, otherwise we shall not truly receive them. A reminder, uh, perhaps, of what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, that it's good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your law. So Spurgeon tells us that he best meets the wants of God's people as a preacher who has had those wants himself. He shall best comfort God's Israel who has needed comfort, and he shall best preach salvation who has felt his own need of it. Jonah then is a man who communicates to others what he has learned himself by experience. And this is one of the things that fits Jonah to be a preacher of salvation. Now Spurgeon reminds us that we're not understanding only this, the special salvation which Jonah himself received from death, but a more general statement, the great work of the salvation of the soul which endures forever. And Spurgeon will give us some basic points. First, I will explain the doctrine. Then, I shall try to show you how God has guarded us from making any mistakes and has hedged us up to make us believe the gospel. Then, the influence of this truth. And then, finally, the counterpart of the doctrine. Now, these aren't perhaps Spurgeon's clearest headings, but it is nonetheless a good logical progression through the text with application as he goes. And actually, it's a well-ordered sermon. If you work your way through it, or as we read through it, you'll see that he uh, has quite a careful progression working through these various points. So the first thing he wants to do is to explain or expound this doctrine that salvation is of the Lord. And he summarizes it, first of all, that the whole of the work by which men are saved from their natural estate of sin and ruin and are translated, that means lifted up and carried into the kingdom of God and made heirs of eternal happiness, is of God and of him only. So the whole redemption, everything that's involved in salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord. And he divides that up by saying, first of all, the plan of salvation is entirely of God. The plan of salvation is entirely of God. No human intellect, 
and no created intelligence assisted God in the planning of salvation. He contrived the way, even as he himself carried it out. So it is divine wisdom, and only divine wisdom. It is divine intelligence, and only divine intelligence. We would never have dared to suggest that God would save in the way that God actually determined to save. Not even an angel would have suggested these things. They would have sat in silence until now, says Spurgeon. They could never have dictated the plan. Salvation is of the Lord in its conception, but also it's of the Lord in execution. God has provided salvation in its entirety of himself. Atonement, says Spurgeon, is the unaided work of of Jesus. The price is paid entirely by him. The work is accomplished without any other contribution. God and God alone in the person of his son has not only planned but now accomplished this salvation. But furthermore, salvation is of the Lord in the application of it. And Spurgeon says this is the point where we have to separate a little bit from the Arminian who says, no, no, salvation is of the Lord in as much as he does all for man that he can do, but there's something that man must do, which he, if he does not, he must perish. That's Arminianism. It's the notion, as Spurgeon presents it here, that at the point of application in particular, there is something for man to do that uh, sometimes God is operating upon something that is already present in or latent in mankind, that there's something in, in which a, a man or a woman is ready to respond. But Spurgeon reminds us that the biblical language of spiritual death is absolute. If God required of the sinner who is dead in sin that he should take the first step, then he requires just that which renders salvation as impossible under the gospel as ever it was under the law. The man is, un is as unable to believe the gospel as he is to obey the law and is just as much without power to come to Christ as he is without power to go to heaven without Christ. The power to believe must be given to the dead man by the Spirit. Until he is made alive, he cannot respond. And so Spurgeon says, I wouldn't bother preaching if I believed that God in the matter of salvation required anything whatever of man which he himself had not also engaged to furnish or supply. In other words, if salvation in its application depended on the willingness or ability of man to respond, no one would be saved because no one could respond because a dead man cannot live unless life is given to him. He cannot respond as if he were alive until he is in fact alive and he cannot make himself alive. Well, says one, that will make people just sit still and fold their arms. No, it won't. And even if it did, wouldn't be my business, said Spurgeon. My business, as I've often said in this place before, is not to prove to you the reasonableness of any truth or to defend that truth from its consequences. All I do here, and I mean to keep to it, is just to assert the truth because it's in the Bible. Then, if you don't like it, you must settle the quarrel with my master, and if you think it unreasonable, you must quarrel with the Bible. 
Now, there's real confidence for you. That's Spurgeon's faith in operation. And notice, and I think this is valuable for us to remember, he doesn't go into some great apologetic discussion about these things. He's a preacher. He's a proclaimer. He's an ambassador. It is so, and you need to deal with that fact. And I think that's a refreshing approach and one that perhaps more preachers today, let's get rid of the perhaps, one that more preachers today need to actually take account of. I am the messenger, says the preacher. I tell the master's message. And if you don't like the message, you can quarrel with the Bible, or you might say with the master, not with me. So long as I have scripture on my side, I will dare and defy you to do anything against me. And now he says there's another point where we're going to go different different ways. Salvation is of the Lord as to the sustaining of the work in any man's heart. So it's not only that God must work to bring us to the Christ in whom he has provided an entire salvation, but that it is God who keeps up that work by his grace in our hearts. As a man does not make himself spiritually alive, no, neither can he keep himself spiritually alive. This is truly humbling. No man of himself, even when converted, has any power except as that power is daily, constantly and perpetually infused into him by the Spirit. Spurgeon is telling us, if you became a Christian yesterday, it's because God was at work in you. If you are still a Christian today, it's because God has undertaken to keep working in you. Grace is uh, in, granted to us moment by moment. God doesn't save us and then leave us to make the rest of the way by ourselves. God is saving us. Christ is savoring us. The Lord Jesus is delivering us from the wrath which is to come. And so we depend upon him for daily grace. When we, when we want our daily bread, we also want our daily grace. Now, there's no doubt in that. The question isn't whether or not God will keep supplying it. It's simply a fact that when God begins a work of salvation, he completes the work of salvation. And one of the ways that he does that is by sustaining the saint day by day by his grace. And of course, it's the ultimate perfection of salvation to which Spurgeon turns next. He's working through the experience of salvation in the chronology of the individual believer. So God has already conceived of and uh, established the principle of salvation. God has accomplished salvation. God applies salvation. God sustains salvation and God completes that salvation. For he will at last bring us to the glory which lies ahead in heaven when grace shall have done its work. This truth shall stand out in blazing letters of gold. Salvation is of the Lord. And all the Arminians in heaven, says Spurgeon, will be Calvinists there because then they will see that there was nothing that they could ascribe to the creature, but it all belongs to God. And uh, I don't think he has his tongue that far in his cheek when he says that. So there is the exposition of the doctrine. And it's really an exposition of the good news that God saves sinners. But now he asks, secondly, how shall I show you how God has hedged this doctrine about? 
How has God uh, defended and defined this doctrine so that it cannot be dismantled? Well, he says, some have said that in some cases salvation is the result of natural temperament, that some people are just inclined to it. They're constitutionally uh, heading in that direction. No, says Spurgeon, God's effectually answered your argument already. No one's naturally religious. No one is inclined toward God. The natural heart is enmity against God. The uh, instinct of the soul is to follow one's own will, not the divine will. There is nobody who is righteous, no, not one. There is nobody who by nature is spiritually alive as opposed to spiritually dead. But uh, it must then be the work of God rather than anything in the inclination of man. And therefore, there is real hope. Because if no one were inclined to the gospel, then no one would ever be saved, but it doesn't depend upon our natural inclination. God himself takes the base things of the world and has just picked his people out of the very roughest of men in order that he may prove that it's not natural disposition, but that salvation is of the Lord alone. Well, somebody else might say, well, if it's not natural temperament, it must be the minister who converts men. That's a great idea, says Spurgeon, but only a fool would entertain it. I met with a man some time ago who assured me that he knew a minister who had a very large amount of converting power in him. And boy, do we hear that same kind of language today. Now, we know that the Lord is pleased to use some men particularly, and he used Spurgeon particularly. But the fact is that it doesn't lie in the man. It's not his virtue. It's not his power. And if it were, they might be lost. Sometimes you, you hear, and <clears throat> Spurgeon uses just this illustration of somebody who comes and he, he converts hundreds of people. And when you look back on it, you find out that they were indeed his converts and someone else has now unconverted them. They weren't God's converts. What any man alone can do, another man can undo. However persuasive or eloquent or charismatic or bullying a preacher may be, salvation belongs to God. It must be his work and his alone if it's a true change. Spurgeon reminds us, that a poor priest, minister began to preach once and all the world spoke ill of him, but God blessed him. By and by they turned round and petted him. He was the man, a wonder. God left him and it's often been the same. It's for us to recollect in all times of popularity that crucify him, crucify him follows fast upon the heels of Hosanna and that the crowd today, if dealt faithfully with, may turn into the handful of tomorrow, for men do not love plain speaking. What is the difference then? It is God, God using the truth that is proclaimed, and therefore the minister is the instrument of God, not the agent himself. Spurgeon says, I fear lest God should forsake me to prove that he is the author of salvation, that it's not in the preacher, not in the crowd, not in the attention I can attract, but in God and in God alone. So when the Lord God makes clear that salvation belongs to him in its entirety, that exposes every claim 
to either natural temperament or inclination in the persons who are converted or natural ability or power in the minister who speaks. Neither of those things can explain genuine conversion or salvation. So what then is the influence of this doctrine upon men? How should you and I respond to this truth? What difference should it make in the way that we think, in the way that we believe, in our attitudes and our actions? First of all, with sinners, this doctrine is a great battering ram against their pride. It, it empties us of ourselves. It tells us that we cannot save ourselves. And Spurgeon talks about the way in which this batters down the pride of man and how by degrees every refuge that the proud sinner seeks to find is taken apart by this reality until the point comes when the man understands that salvation is of the Lord. If any man say he can save himself, it halves his pride at once. And if another man says he cannot be saved, it dashes his despair to the earth, for it affirms that he can be saved, seeing salvation is of the Lord. This is the effect that this doctrine has upon the sinner. May it have that effect upon you. It grinds you down, says Spurgeon. It strips away all your boasting, all your excusing and all your despairing for it tells you that salvation lies outside of you and is offered to you rather than lying within you to be stirred up or employed by you. But what about the saint? What about the Christian? Says Spurgeon, this is the keystone of all divinity. I will defy you to be heterodox if you believe this truth. I will defy you to wander into error if you believe this truth. You must be sound in the faith if you have learned to spell this sentence, salvation is of the Lord. And if you feel it in your soul, you will not be proud. If you believe this, you will not be distrustful. What he's trying to say, I think, here is that this is a, a linchpin of theology, that when you say salvation is of the Lord, you have a certain kind of an anchor point that will stop you, stop you drifting into errors of principle and of practice, because it will hold you fast close to a sovereign, saving God. Not only will it stop you being proud, not only will it stop you being doubtful and distrustful, but you may always be joyful because you know that salvation hangs upon God and does not depend upon you. Salvation does not rest on your poor arm. If it did, you would despair. But on the arm of omnipotent God, the arm on which the pillars of the heavens do lean. Why do you need to be afraid, says Spurgeon? Why should you not rejoice in a salvation that is guaranteed by God himself? Furthermore, grace of uh, the sovereign grace of God nerves you to work for God. It stirs you up to work for God. Now, if you had to save your neighbours, you might sit down and do nothing. But since salvation is of the Lord, go on and prosper. Go and preach the gospel. Go and tell the gospel everywhere. Spurgeon is a genuine Calvinist. Convictions about the salvation that God accomplishes and applies and completes 
do not stop us laboring. They send us to labor because we've got a message to take and a God who uses his gospel and demonstrates that this is his power for salvation. It doesn't lie in us. It is of the Lord. And Spurgeon tells us then that we need to be stirred up by this truth to go and preach the gospel, recognizing that this gospel, though hated by men, is the power of God. And we need to trust God to accomplish it and to venture upon him, recognizing that some must pay a great price in order for this gospel to go out. We shall never see any great change till we have some men in our ranks who are willing to be martyrs, said Spurgeon. That deep ditch can never be crossed till the bodies of a few of us shall fill it up. And after that, it will be easy work to preach the gospel there. He's using a military metaphor, the, the ditches that would have been dug for the defence of a, of a fortress or a city. And the, the armies of these days would, would rush the fortress. There'd be typically a battering of the guns and then there'd be a first wave. And, and Spurgeon says that first wave is typically uh, the enemy awaiting in all their force. But it needs those brave men who will... Uh, cross the ditch and over whose bodies others will pass in order to make that uh, that final thrust. And so we need to be recollecting that salvation is of the Lord and believing that to preach that gospel. By this stage, Spurgeon's becoming weary. He says uh, he's, he's, uh, he is very tired. He said, I started tired and I'm tired now. Sometimes I'm joyous and glad and feel in the pulpit as if I could preach forever. At other times I feel glad to close. But yet with such a text, I would that I could have finished up with all the might that mortal lip could summon. Interesting, uh, especially for those of us who may be preachers and instructive for those of us who listen to them, the humanity at this point. Uh, it's perhaps worth remembering that very few know what's going on behind the preacher's eyes or in the preacher's breast when he's preaching. Sometimes they are lifted up and they feel a measure of assistance. Other times they they feel like they're grinding it out. Sometimes they wish that they could just finish and, and run away and hide. And, and Spurgeon's saying, but despite my own frailty, despite my weakness and my weariness, I'm so taken up with this truth that I, I know it deserves every fibre of my being to be thrilling to it. I want to get this across. So he's, he's wrestling with the frailty of his own humanity and trying to, to, to give everything he's got to getting this message over. Pray for your preachers. They're they're feeble men. They're they're not great and they're not wise and they're not eloquent and they need the help of the Spirit. Uh, he himself is is showing what he believes that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not his own strength. It's not the the excellence of the preacher. And now, in concluding, he says, "What's the obverse? What's the other side of this truth? If salvation is of God." then damnation is of man. So here's the flip side, as it were, that there's human responsibility as well as divine sovereignty. If any of you are damned, says Spurgeon, you will have no one to blame but yourselves. 
If any of you perish, the blame will not lie at God's door. If you are lost and cast away, you will have to bear all the blame and all the tortures of conscience yourselves. So our sin merits God's judgment. We are by nature under his wrath. And so if we are lost, we have lost ourselves because we've gone on despite the entreaties and invitations of God. If saved, we must be saved by God alone. If lost, we have lost ourselves. You see, the wonder is not that anyone is damned, because we all deserve judgment. The wonder is that anyone is saved. And Spurgeon here is marshalling all his remaining resources of human strength, With my last faltering sentence, I bid you stop and think. Ah, my hearers, my hearers, it is an awful thing to preach to such a mass, such a crowd as this. Just the other Sundays I came downstairs, I was struck with a memorable sentence uttered by one who stood there. He said, There are 8,000 people this morning without excuse in the day of judgment. I should like to preach so that this always might be said, and if I cannot, oh, may God have mercy on me for his name's sake. Anybody who's ever preached will feel the weight of that. If there were eight people present that morning, I think Spurgeon would have felt at least something of the same burden. But when there are 8,000, how much multiplied is the preacher's responsibility. Now, we're not saying that you just count up the souls, but there's a weight of responsibility as a congregation grows, as uh, other people are reached, and Spurgeon feels the weight of this. And that reality in itself really is uh, an expression of the whole burden of the sermon. If if the 8,000 people depended on Spurgeon for salvation, it would have killed him. He still felt his responsibility to preach, and he still knew that God would hold him accountable for the way he preached. But if he preaches the gospel and leaves people without excuse, having held out the horrors of judgment and the realities of salvation, then he knows that he can leave the matter with God. And so here he is, and again, he's bringing the points together. Because he knows that this is God's gospel, he cries, he pleads, he yearns, he, he's pleading with this congregation. Down on your knees, cry to God for mercy, lift up your heart in prayer to God, may now be the very time when you shall be saved. This is Calvinistic evangelizing. This is the truth of a man who's persuaded that God can save, calling upon sinners to hear his word and to respond to him. It's a beautiful and an appropriate and a biblically, scripturally sound and proper holding together of these truths that you cannot afford to go on in your sin when the God of heaven is holding out salvation. And so he pleads with men to turn, to fly to Christ, and to be accepted in the beloved. It's a a potent sermon. 
it goes from this clear exposition of the truth. It's a very logical and orderly construction showing the the progress and the process of salvation in God's conception, God's accomplishment, God's application, God's sustaining and God's completion. And then, uh, and you can feel the the capacity of the preacher, at least physically, declining, but his intensity rising. And what began then as this orderly setting forth of the truth, having built this engine, as it were, Spurgeon fires it up and he drives it at the heart of men and women. And he wants us to grasp it. He wants us to believe it. He wants us to respond to it, that we may be humbled ready to accept God's salvation if we do not yet know him and that we may delight in it and respond to it and be formed by it if we have already received it and enjoyed it. And then that last thrust at the heart. Peace is to be had now for the mere asking for it. So come and receive the salvation that God has accomplished and all will be well with your soul. What a wonderful example of how to preach such a truth as this and what a good lesson for us to learn as God's people, if that's what we are, of how God has worked these wonders of grace on our behalf and what a sweet invitation if we are not yet in the kingdom of God to receive that which he has accomplished and which he still freely offers through his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.